Hi, I'm Brianna from Grand Junction, Colorado, a student pharmacist from the University of Colorado Skaggs School of Pharmacy in Aurora, Colorado. Hi, I'm Celia from Northville, Michigan, a student pharmacist from Shenandoah University in Winchester, Virginia. You're listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Jeffrey Bratberg, clinical professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice from the University of Rhode Island, and a pioneer who has championed the role of pharmacists in addressing the opioid overdose crisis. Hello and welcome to the Pharmacy Forward podcast. My name is Stuart Haynes from the University of Mississippi and joining me today is my co-host, Ha Fan, a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident. Hello and welcome. Our topic today is the opioid crisis. Unless you've been living in a remote part of the world where you don't get news and don't have internet access, it won't come as a surprise that an unprecedented number of opioid-related overdoses and deaths have occurred in the United States and continue to increase over the past several years. Today, we'd like to explore the reasons why this crisis has developed, what the state and federal governments have done to address this crisis, and how pharmacists and other health professionals can get involved and implement solutions. Well, our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Bratberg, who's professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at the University of Rhode Island School of Pharmacy, and really a pioneer in the development of programs to reduce the risk of harm associated with opioid use. Jeff was trained as an infectious disease specialist, but as the opioid crisis began to emerge in his state, in Rhode Island, Jeff was quick to see the novel ways that pharmacists could have a meaningful impact. And so over the past six years, Dr. Bratberg has been at the forefront of the opioid crisis and has trained literally thousands of health professionals. And so we're truly honored to have him on our podcast today. So Jeff, welcome to Pharmacy Forward. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful introduction. Happy to be here. So, Jeff, I've seen you speak at national conferences on a number of occasions, and every time I attend one of your presentations, I learn something new. Uh, this crisis really didn't just appear out of nowhere. It's evolved over time. So can you give us a brief historical perspective of how we got here and what the biggest threats today are? Well, this is really a long story in that we've had opioids in some form for you know hundreds or thousands of years. And morphine actually was converted by a chemist in the 1800s. And, and the story goes is the chemist gave it to his dog and the dog got really sick. And he said, this is a very dangerous chemical and put it aside until about 20 years later, the German company Bayer picked it up and started marketing it for all sorts of things of which it was extremely effective for, for coughs, for aches and pains, for teething. In fact, uh, one of the interesting things that opioids were used to treat was cocaine addiction. Pharmacists actually were on the front lines before there was a law that said can't sell these things essentially over the counter, and it went underground. But it resurfaced in, in the 30s, uh, often in minority communities, and the drug war, which went into effect with the formation of the DEA in, in the early 70s in the Nixon administration. We had all of these controlled substance laws, the federal controlled substance laws that all of our 
pharmacists and students learn for their law exams, which did actually a good thing is that it codified methadone treatment for people with opioid use disorder, but interestingly was not allowed to be in U.S. pharmacies at the time. And so now we had treatment for opioid use disorder. There was a letter in 1980, a non-peer-reviewed, very short letter that said opioids don't cause addiction. And while opioids were used very often for acute pain, it wasn't until they started being marketed for chronic pain with the thought that it didn't cause addiction. We over-prescribed pills, but it wasn't the pills that really were necessarily the problem. It was a problem in American society. We lost connection with one another. So as our community broke down, as a sense of purpose changed, as the economic uncertainty roiled the Southwest in states like New Mexico and, and clearly in Appalachia and, uh, and New England, where I am, we saw these pills as, as an escape. And we saw these, what's been called as deaths of despair. And we've seen life expectancy de- decrease for two consecutive years. And the only other epidemic has been the HIV epidemic, for which federal and state legislation were passed, where we invested extraordinarily heavily in all uh, aspects of that epidemic and have, have done a pretty good job of controlling it. But now we've had more overdose death related to opioids more than at the peak of the HIV crisis when we didn't have any medications. The contrast is startling and that the lack of or the delayed federal policy and state policy in some places and in the negative attitude, the stigma, as you'll hear. We've had a prescription opioid problem. Prescription opioid deaths are down. We tried to control them. Controlled them, now we have a heroin epidemic, and then heroin has to be grown and shipped. A kilo of heroin you make $80,000 from, but a kilo of a fentanyl analog, an illicitly manufactured fentanyl, shipped through the mail, nets the distributor a million dollars. You have to think of the economics of this uh, amazingly complex and resourceful and flexible illicit market for which supply controls just don't work. We saw it with alcohol, with prohibition. And what's even more interesting, I think opioids still are easier to get than the drugs used to treat the opioid use disorder. That was really interesting. So thanks for the brief history lesson. So in October of 2017, the Trump administration declared the opioid crisis a national public health emergency. But before we talk about what's been happening at the federal level to respond to the crisis, most of the action to date has been taking place at the state level. Most of the people in our audience are familiar with prescription drug monitoring programs. But can you give a summary of the types of things that are being done around the United States to address this crisis? What the PMP does is that any controlled substance or whatever the state says the controlled substances are, Schedules 2 and 3 or 234 or 2345, some states like ours actually track non-controlled substances like naloxone. And, you know, it's really an efficient data tool if used in a public health manner. PMPs can be effective to probably decrease deaths from prescription opioids because people aren't taking those, but it's shifting this curve towards the illicit opioid market. You know, I hear from colleagues all the time, Jeff, I'm really helping you with that opioid crisis because I checked the PMP and the person had been to four pharmacies and four docs, and I said, no, you're not going to get this opioid. But the problem is, is that heroin deaths have gone up. Some papers have shown almost a 300% increase in heroin deaths because people, when they can't access the opioid, they have addiction, which is a relapsing, remitting brain disease, an actual change in their brain, will seek out opioids. And heroin, and most of the heroin in some parts of the country is fentanyl now, extraordinarily dangerous, more potent, and therefore more lethal. 
We need to massively expand treatment access. We need insurance coverage of treatment access. Um, some well-done studies this year have proven that states that expand Medicaid have had a profound effect providing access to care and access to prevention, access to opioid antagonists like naloxone. If you don't expand Medicaid, those things are not in place and we're seeing more essentially preventable deaths. So PMPs, um, prescription restrictions, you, you think it makes sense to put limits on prescriptions, you know, fewer pills out there. And some of those elements actually are great, but if they're only going to be accessed, sometimes in some states without a warrant by law enforcement, law enforcement folks are fantastic and great partners in the crisis, but they are not the way that people are going to get their disease treated. We don't arrest people who are diagnosed with diabetes because they are consuming things that are exacerbating their diabetes or exacerbating their hypertension. One thing that I think is lacking that states haven't done, but uh, I think there's funding coming now, public awareness. Mainly it's sort of, you know, opioids are really dangerous, here's a take back day. And we've had 50 states now where by various mechanisms, pharmacists can initiate naloxone uh, prescriptions. Uh, it's not really over the counter, but they can use standing orders or prescriptive authority to get naloxone out. One of the most exciting things we've done in our state is, is we passed a regulation and a law requiring co-prescribing of naloxone, and we saw a 400% increase in naloxone. So we've had more naloxone go out through a co-prescribing law, asking providers to do it, even with massive campaigns and massive education of prescribers, only when it was codified into law, we see this sort of positive effect of regulation. The more people who are saved and screened and provided access to treatment, either indirectly or directly from pharmacists and other health professionals, the more we're going to destigmatize this. So a better use of resources is really to find folks um, at any point of care to provide low barrier access to treatment, but it really has to be medication-centered, and that's why pharmacists need to be there. So, Jeff, thanks for uh, giving us a brief summary of everything that's kind of happened on the state level and things that we really should be doing at a local and, and regional basis. But let's talk about the federal level. I know there's been some action recently at the federal level and a recent bill passed. Uh, of course, the Trump administration has declared it a crisis and, and given new resources to the public health. Uh, but tell us what's been happening at a federal level. Well, it's great that we're. Uh, investing many billions of dollars over several years, but it's not going far enough. We cannot arrest our way out of the problem. So there's a there's a I think Senator Portman from Ohio uh, is very concerned about fentanyl trafficking, but realized that in many different studies and actually many different substances, price is not elastic based on seizures. The federal government thinks that putting a border wall will keep out people trafficking drugs. Well, DHL flies their planes into many different cities in America from China and from Canada and from other countries, and fentanyl, because of its potency, can be uh, smuggled that way or, or shipped that way. Although parts of the bill do enhance the efforts to screen that, again, these supply-based controls really don't have the effect that we're looking for, which is mortality reduction. Again, we get mortality reduction through expanded naloxone, so that's in the bill. Assuring sustainable supplies for our first responders, um, that's important. More money for research to develop opioids that, um, or opioid-like molecules or substances that don't cause euphoria, that don't cause constipation and other side effects, that's fantastic too. Limiting Prescription painkillers is okay in terms of duration, but I think it's more important to 
change the insurance structure so that, you know, for example, low back pain is one of the most common causes of chronic pain, but interventions for low back pain are non-pharmaceutical. You know, acetaminophen doesn't work, ibuprofen doesn't work, opioids don't work. What does work are physical therapy, yoga, those kinds of things actually have benefits. But how hard is it for someone in a state that didn't expand Medicaid or even in one that did, that you can conveniently find a physical therapist? That's the interventions that we know that need to be scaled up. Uh, they do continue funding for the Cures Act, which offers all sorts of different interventions on prevention, overdose response, treatment, and recovery. We see 50 to 80% reductions in mortality through medications. And I don't see why we're not using mechanisms like through the ACA and other mechanisms to make medications zero copay, no prior authorization. And let's really get pharmacists the ability to prescribe these. I'm part of a NIDA sponsored study, and we just enrolled our first two patients this week, uh, where pharmacists are in a collaborative practice agreement managing buprenorphine uh, on behalf of physicians and physician assistants at our opioid treatment program or public opioid treatment program here in Rhode Island. But that's just because we can't get certified. PAs can, NPs can, DOs, MDs, pharmacists need to do that, and, and our organizations have pushed for it, but it's not in this bill. Good to hear that the government has at least funded some Medicare Medicaid programs as well as the naloxone program that you talked about and, and research as well. And hopefully more funding will be coming in the future for pharmacists to be more involved, especially with the prescribing that you mentioned. Absolutely. Jeff, you mentioned earlier that the opioid-related deaths due to illicit drug use and particularly the use of synthetics has really skyrocketed in recent years because there's been a shift from prescribed opioids to these synthetics and illicit distribution of these drugs. Obviously, the sale and use of opioids in this context is really outside of what we'd call normal medical channels. So many of the people in our audience, pharmacists and other health professionals, might think this really isn't a medical problem, and it's not something that pharmacists really should be involved with or be even aware of. So what would you say to these people who think that illicit use of opioids really isn't relevant to their practice? Well, I always remind people of our oath of the pharmacist or the, the Hippocratic oath for our medical colleagues. With the pharmacist's oath, the first line, I will consider the welfare of humanity and relief of suffering my primary concerns. It's not medical suffering or psychological suffering or community suffering. It's the welfare of humanity and relief of suffering. There, the WHO, the World Health Organization, and other organizations have concluded that substance use disorder or substance use disorders or opioid use disorder is the most stigmatized medical condition we have. And we as healthcare workers need to look within and find our implicit biases and find out why is it when we think of a drug user or a drug abuser, and we, why do we use this word abuse and put the problem of this disease onto this person? They're not defined by their disease. I think what we see is the consequences. And so we think, what if those people come into my community pharmacy? Or what do we do when they come into the hospital? One hospital in the country has now limited visitors to people who are diagnosed with opioid use disorder. Instead of doing what other hospitals do, which is refer them to care, start them on medications while in the hospital, make sure they're connected to not only primary care and other preventative health efforts. And if they don't want medications, they we get connected to other kinds of care. And if they don't want to see a psychologist or psychiatrist, 
we refer them to other things. And if they come into the hospital with a skin infection related to injection use, there's a really easy solution, and that's making sure they have a supply of sterile syringes, making sure they have insurance coverage of sterile syringes. People who inject drugs need our vaccines. In most states, we can administer not just flu, but a whole suite of vaccines. There's hepatitis A outbreaks in Massachusetts and California among homeless folks, but also have an opioid use disorder. It's all interrelated. Directly, of course, is hepatitis B. These are preventable infections, and we need to do that. And other infections that we can manage that are also transmitted by syringes are HIV and hepatitis C. We need to be there in the front lines in a population that has been stigmatized by the very people we have taken an oath to serve. And so we really need to change the paradigm and change the way we think about the underserved, vulnerable communities and realize that they are suffering. It is our primary concern. So let's consider their welfare and think of pharmacies, community pharmacies or urgent care or ambulatory care as places where we reduce harm. Because if we show that we care about reducing their harm of use, you know, one memorable story one of our participants said was there was a woman who came in, kept buying syringes, and I kept selling her the syringes and saying, you know, do the right thing, do the right thing. And she came back with a buprenorphine prescription. She got referred and screened and diagnosed um, and didn't die and didn't spread disease or acquire diseases. That's a success story. When Syringes are refused. They become like a case study that I was a co-author on where they developed an MRSA infection that went to their spine and they are a quadriplegic because their spine eroded away. Again, lack of access to healthcare. Those are the dramatic anecdotes that I feel the need to tell folks to say there is a consequence to refusal of care and refusal of care goes against our pharmacist's oath. So as a current pharmacy resident and someone who is responsible for developing a practice of my own very soon, I was wondering if there was specific ways that I can be involved. What are potential roles for student pharmacists, pharmacists in the community, as you already touched on, as well as pharmacists in outpatient clinics and pharmacists in the hospital? So the the easy answer is naloxone. Um, I am the naloxone guy from URI. Uh, someone coined that phrase, so I, I'll say it on the podcast here. So naloxone can be in all those places. If you can identify, and our systems are set up to identify whether integrated with PMP or not, someone goes out on a high-dose opioid. If they go out on an opioid and a benzo uh, prescription, if they um, have a diagnosed opioid use disorder, if they've been started on MAT, making sure that our patients who are prescribed buprenorphine still have naloxone because they're in a position to help other people. And that's the other thing, too, is role modeling. Be the role model. Carry that naloxone. I'm hoping that both of my hosts have naloxone. They know where it is, and they carry it with them all the time. It's really easy to reverse an overdose as long as you have naloxone on you. So making sure you have it, making sure students are, are going into pharmacies to get it, I think in outpatient clinics, there's a greater role for screening, brief intervention, referral to, to treatment. I think pharmacists and ambulatory clinics need to be providing treatment through CPAs or whatever mechanism is available. And if it's not available, advocate to change it or do a pilot project. Pharmacists and hospitals, again, we need to be compassionate for people with opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders. 
it's a perfect time to talk about naloxone, whether a non-fatal overdose was part of their reason for admission or whether they're there with uh, skin infections or endocarditis from, from non-sterile syringe use or reuse of syringes. Um, those conversations are, are easier there perhaps than in community pharmacies, but it's the same conversation. It's harm reduction, it's compassionate care, it's taking the time to listen you know, do scholarship, do research, and in every single article you'll read about state or federal interventions for the opioid crisis, data is there, right? So I have students helping me with uh, PMP analysis, and that, yeah, may result in a publication, but will really help the state or help policies. Um, you know, one email resulted in an additional 800 prescriptions of naloxone in the last two months. I think that those are some of the things that, that we can do in all those venues. So, Jeff, I really want to thank you for joining us today for the Pharmacy Forward podcast and sharing your considerable wisdom and experience. To summarize what we've learned today, as pharmacists, we play an important role in destigmatizing this opioid overdose crisis. We can aid in this process by serving as a role model, by carrying naloxone, as well as being aware of the crisis itself and the resources that the state and federal government currently provide, as well as advocating for our patients by referring them to screening and providing the medications that are truly needed, which I hope in the next few years, pharmacists will be able to recognize the model that you've created for pharmacists in Rhode Island and be able to expand collaborative practice agreements across the United States and more roles for ambulatory care pharmacists like myself. Thank you so much for being with us here today, and I've learned so much. Thanks so much. Have a good one. This has been fun. Go out and do good. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. If you like this podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcast app and tell all of your pharmacy friends and colleagues. If you have a story you'd like to share about someone who's transforming knowledge into action, send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Pharmacy Forward is produced by the Division of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. For more information about our professional development programs, visit pharmacycpd.org. That's pharmacycpd.org. This episode was conceived and developed by Ha Fan, Alex Mills, Megan Brown, Lori Fleming, Josh Fleming, and Stuart Haynes.